Throughout the summer, we've been going uh, through this series called Storytime, focusing on the parables of Jesus. Next Sunday, we're going to be kicking off a brand new series. Pastor Chris is going to be teaching it, uh, and so we're super looking forward to that. Uh, this morning, though, we kind of get to wrap up this series as we've been discussing different parables that Jesus tells throughout his earthly ministry. Now, I would imagine that many of you are familiar with Aesop's fable, the tortoise and the hare, right? The tortoise and the hare. It's about this bunny rabbit and this turtle, and they have a race, right? Now, we know that bunny rabbits are fast. You ever try to catch one, you know it's probably not going to happen. And turtles, well, they're not, right? They're just not fast. And so this story is all about this race that's going to take place between this bunny rabbit and a turtle. And because the outcome, it just seems so obvious to us, the idea that there's even going to be a race seems kind of ridiculous. Like, we know the bunny rabbit is going to win, so why even bother? Kind of like the NBA Finals this year, right? We knew the Warriors were going to win, so why even play? Now, the NBA is an absolute joke right now. Uh, that's a whole other topic. I, uh, we'll get into that after the service sometime. Flag me down, and I'd love to tell you about why the NBA is just a joke. Um, but, but that's the reality, right? I mean, why even play? We know there's going to win. Why should there even be a race? We know the bunny is going to destroy the turtle, right? This is like David and Goliath. The turtle doesn't have a prayer. Betting on the turtle is essentially to say, I am a moron, right? I mean, that's just, there's no way, there's no way the turtle is going to win. So, the race begins as expected. The bunny takes off, develops this huge lead, right? I mean, this massive lead. So much so, the bunny's like, hey, I'm going to take a nap along the side of the road or along the side of this race course and just kind of wait because I got that much time, right? I have that big of a lead that I'm just going to sit here and chill for a little while. And so the bunny rabbit does. The turtle is all about slow and steady progress, right? Just one foot in front of the other, making its way down the course. And eventually, slow and steady progress allows the turtle to get to the point in which the bunny has chosen to take a nap. Now, unfortunately for the bunny, right, it doesn't notice that the turtle passes him on by. And now the turtle is nearing the finish line. And when the bunny wakes up and sees the turtle is about to cross the finish line, he does everything he can to catch up and win the race, but he's not able to do so, right? And in the most epic upset of all time, the turtle beats the bunny rabbit, right? It should never have been this way, and yet this is, a, right, praise Jesus for, the, for the, 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 the victory, right? Coming out of the pit of despair. And so this is the story, right? And it has so many different lessons for us to learn, but, but here's the thing, right? There's so many different modern-day examples of this particular story in the world of sports. Super Bowl 51, Atlanta Falcons versus the New England Patriots. Midway through the third quarter, the Atlanta Falcons are up by 25 points. And me, along with every other football fan in the country, are like, hey, awesome. The Patriots aren't going to win, right? This is fantastic. Nobody really wants to see Tom Brady and the Patriots go on to do it again, right? They're cheaters. We all know this. Now, <laughs> right? Now, to the dismay of every single person ever except for those, like, little group band of followers for the Patriots, right, to the dismay of everyone, we just watch in horror as the Patriots go on to score 25 unanswered points 
force overtime, and then end up winning the game, right? It's terrible. Just a terrible thing that happened. But like the bunny, the falcons fell asleep, and they didn't wake up in time. In the 2016 World Series, the Cleveland Indians were defeating my Chicago Cubbies three games to one. And I got to tell you, depression was starting to set in, right? I said, here we go again. We're so close and yet so far away, right? This is just mean that they're going to lose again. But then we started to claw our way back, right? We won game four in Wrigley. We wore, excuse me, game five at Wrigley. We destroyed them in game six. And then it was game seven, right? This was going to be this epic victory, this epic game. And the Chicago Cubbies, we pulled it out in the set or the tenth inning, right? Game seven and won our first World Series in 108 years, right? 108 years. That's a long time. Right? That is a long time, but here's the crazy thing is Cleveland only had to win one more, right? They just had to win one more game, and they were unable to do it. But perhaps the best example, modern-day example that we have of the tortoise and the hare takes place at a college track meet. Check this out. Take my word for it. There's a moral to this story. Uh, yeah, maybe next time wait that extra second before celebrating. A college track star learned the dangers of premature celebration. The runner from the University of Oregon thought he had the race locked up, started waving, pumping up the crowd, and he was passed by a runner from the University of Washington in the final seconds, not just the final seconds, the difference with a tenth of a second. The University of Washington wins. Yeah, just a bit of a disappointment there. Oh, man. That is, that is absolutely terrible, right? I mean, if you're that guy's coach, what do you even say? Like, what, what do you even say? I mean, really, like, you don't even have to say anything, right? You just look at them, right? Kind of how I look at my kids when they do something wrong, right? You just, you just meme mock him, and he knows, right? He will never forget that for the rest of his life. The Oregon runner, he assumes he's going to win the race. He thinks he has it in the bag, hence the premature celebration, only to get passed up at the end. He doesn't secure the victory. He fails to cross the finish line first. Now, I always talk, enjoy talking about sports and competition, and I assure you my reasoning for telling you all these stories is much more than wanting to bask in the glory of the Cubs World Series victory, right? I promise. All of these stories actually relate to the parable we're talking about this morning. I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 15 or navigate there in your Bible app. Excuse me, Luke chapter 14. Excuse me. We're going to start in verse 15. But Luke chapter 14. And we're going to be taking a look uh, this morning at the parable, the parable of the great banquet. And while you're turning there, I just want to give you some context for the passage, kind of let you know what's going on in just this chapter leading up to this point of Jesus telling this particular story. Now, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that it was a regular occurrence for Jesus to go at it, right, butt heads with this group known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious rulers in that day. They were the keepers of the law. They knew the law inside and out, both oral and written, and held the Jewish people to the same standard of keeping those many, many laws. 
And so during Jesus' earthly ministry, he was always coming down on the Pharisees for something, right? Sometimes he would talk about their heart or their motivation behind what they were doing. Sometimes he would challenge them and call them out because they were legalistic or they were even being hypocritical in how they were leading the people, right? This nation as the religious rulers. And then in Luke 11, and perhaps you've read it before, if not, go and check it out sometime. Jesus chews them out like never before, right? He just goes in on them so hard and picks them apart and is completely offensive to them and their, their way of living and how they carry their, their, their lives out, how they kind of perform their religious duties. And it was from that point on in Luke chapter 11 that it says the Bible tells us the Pharisees opposed Jesus fiercely. And from that point on, they began to ask questions of Jesus, trying to, to lure him in and, and bait him into doing something or saying something that would break one of their laws, give them reasons to condemn this man, Jesus. And it was their desire to catch him doing the wrong thing that led the Pharisees, this particular group, to invite Jesus over for a meal. Right? They wanted to trap him. They set a trap for him. Luke chapter 14, verse 1 says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Right? That is just a messed up reason to have a dinner party. Like, hey, let's invite this guy over. We're going to trap him. It's going to be fantastic. And, and that's why we'll have him over for a party. Right? Just a terrible reason to have a meal together. Now, we know, again, that when Jesus and the Pharisees get together, sparks fly. And not in like the romantic chemistry type of way that sparks fly, right? This is more like swords clashing in which sparks are flying. When Jesus and the Pharisees get together, it's like a bad family reunion, right? Think the Griswolds at Christmas time. Nothing is going well, right? Nobody likes each other. It just doesn't seem to be, they're not going to get along. Right? And so we shouldn't be surprised when during this meal, things get real. Right? Jesus starts calling them out, and we see it unfold, right? And in, in verses 2 through 6, Jesus scolds them for their lack of compassion, their lack of kindness toward other people. In verses 7 through 11, Jesus calls them out for their lack of humility. The Pharisees were all about choosing the place of honor around the table for themselves. And so they would go pick their seat rather than having the host appoint them to a specific seat. And Jesus then calls them out because they weren't humble. They were filled with pride. And then Jesus directly addresses the host, right? They're all at this guy's house, and he directly addresses the host. And, and Jesus lets him know what biblical hospitality actually looks like. It's about caring for those in need. It was about caring for those who can't return the favor. It was about caring for the outcasts of society, those who were often excluded. In essence, Jesus is calling out this particular Pharisee who was hosting the party. He's calling him out for his guest list. You see, the host was catering to the people that he saw as valuable. But in verse 13, Jesus says, no, no, no. When you have a banquet, when you invite somebody, biblical hospitality calls, that, calls for that you would invite those who are, who are lame, poor, blind, the crippled. These are the people who should be around your table. 
And it's all of this that leads up to the parable of the great banquet. This is where we kind of dive into that. And it was overhearing the comments that Jesus makes to the host about the guest list. There was another Pharisee in the room around the table, and he hears what Jesus had just said to this particular Pharisee, the host of this party, right? And, and this particular Pharisee, he makes a comment. Blessed are those who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God, right? That's what verse 15 says. He hears what Jesus says about the who should be there, who you should invite. And then this guy says, well, blessed are those who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. In other words, he's pronouncing this blessing on everyone who will one day be in heaven, right? That's what he's talking about when he says the feast at the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of God. Now, I, I can't help but wonder if this particular Pharisee who's making this comment in verse 15 is just desperately looking for a way to relieve the tension in what would have been the most awkward, uncomfortable dinner party ever, right? I mean, you've got to see the wheels turning, right? He's desperately trying to find common ground like, hey, we're a bunch of religious guys. We all want to go to heaven. We like heaven. So, uh, hey, hey, everyone, you know. Blessed are those who are going to be in heaven one day, right, Jesus? <laughs> right? He's just like this nervous laughter. You can just sense it. Like, this dude is uncomfortable, right? It's so tense. And he's just trying to, like, hit the release valve on this party. It's like, man, this is the worst situation ever. So blessed are those who are going to be in heaven one day. We can all get behind that. And here's Jesus' chance to bring some relief to the situation, right? I mean, here is Jesus' chance to say, you know what, guys? I I've been a little hard on you, and you're, you're right. Heaven is going to be awesome, and I, I just can't wait till we're all there together one day. And everybody can go, ah, but no, no, right? Of course that's not what Jesus does. Uh, of course, he doesn't let these guys off the hook. Instead, he goes on to tell this story, right? And, and this story is actually just the opposite of making everyone feel comfortable. Instead of allowing everyone to feel comfortable, Jesus actually uses this statement from this Pharisee in verse 15 to tee off on these guys yet again. And, and I think this is a good reminder for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, this particular scenario. It's a good reminder for us that Jesus isn't about our comfort, right? He's about our spiritual growth. He, he's about our sanctification, the fact that you and I look and become more and more like Jesus. I don't really think he cares about our level of comfort. If he did, he wouldn't have told the next story, right? He doesn't let them off the hook, though, because Jesus knows comfort is the enemy of spiritual growth. Comfort is the enemy of spiritual growth. And so rather than bringing comfort into this situation, he goes on to tell a story, which means there's more sparks coming. Check out verses 16 through 24 as Jesus tells this story. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm still on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. 
Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, we, before we break down this story and try to wrap our minds around this story, we have to just go back briefly to verse 15, when this Pharisee says, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. You see, implied in this statement is the assumption that the Pharisees will be present at the feast in the kingdom of God. Because why would you make that statement if you don't believe it's true of you? Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. You don't say that unless you know or you believe, hey, I'm going to be at the feast of the kingdom of God. And of course, the Pharisees felt like they would be present. They're the religious rulers. They're the keepers of the law. They know all of these things about Scripture. How could they not be at this particular feast? But this parable comes with a warning for the Pharisees. In essence, Jesus is saying, don't count your chickens before they hatch, right? Don't count your chickens before they hatch. And so we dive into this story a little bit, and we find out there's this man who is going to throw this huge banquet, this huge party, and he's going to invite a ton of people. And in verse 15, or 17, excuse me, we learn that everything's ready. It's time for the party to begin. And as was the custom, he sends out his servants to let everyone know, hey, come on over, everything's ready, it's go time, we're going to have a good time together. Now, in this particular time in, in biblical history, the invitation to a banquet was a two-part process. First, the invitation would go out, kind of letting everybody else know, hey, this is what's going to be happening. We'd love to start getting RSVPs, right? It's kind of like an Evite today. You send a letter, like, let everybody know this is what's going to be taking place. Would love for you to come. They would give that initial response, hey, I can make it, or no, I can't. And then the second part is when the party is ready, those who said they would come, Right? Those who said, I will be at the banquet. Later on, when the party is ready, when the banquet is ready to, be, to begin, the master, the host, would send out a servant and invite all those people who had said yes, hey, come on over, it's time to get things going. And so in verse 17, we see the second part of this invitation process unfold. The master is sending out his servant to say, hey, everyone, now is the time. Come, for the banquet is ready. And here's where the story takes a bit of an odd twist, right? Here's where things begin to take a turn. Because some of the guests who had been invited and accepted that initial invitation were now turning down that invitation at the last minute. See, if nothing else, at this point in time, at this stage of the game, that would at least have been considered rude. They had initially agreed to come to this banquet. But now they were making excuses for why they could no longer attend. 
I know probably the majority of us in this room at some point have planned or helped plan a wedding or some other big party in which RSVPs were pretty critical to this whole operation, right? It's kind of important to get the RSVP. You need to know who's coming, right? And then if that's been you, if you've had an experience like that, you know how frustrating it is when somebody says, hey, I'm coming, and then at the last minute says, psych, can't come anymore, right? Because at this point, everything's ready to go, right? The table assignments have all been set. You've probably already gotten their order for what meal they're going to have at the reception. And not only have you gotten their order, but you've paid for it, right? And so you're like, yo, your excuse better be legit, for why you're not coming to this banquet, especially at this stage of the game. Now, the next few verses, we continue on down this parable. We learn the excuses given by those who had initially accepted this invitation to the banquet. This first person said, oh, I bought a field and I got to go check it out. And you're like, well, that sounds kind of weird. But at this point in time in biblical history, a post purchase inspection was often required to close the deal. So while that excuse sounds a little bit odd to us, this would have been commonplace, right? This would have been a, a fairly normal type of, of thing that would have gone on, and so it's, it's really not too much out of left field. However, it revealed the guest's priorities. You see, something else, in this case, attending to their business deal, was more important than attending the banquet. The second person who was invited, they, they couldn't come because they bought five yoke of oxen and they wanted to try them out. Now the fact that they bought that many oxen reveals their wealth. And one commentator, he even draws a parallel between the amount of oxen that they bought and the fact that they probably had a ton of land, maybe even two to five times the amount of land of an average landowner. And so while he gives that excuse, their excuse reveals their priorities. They chose to place more value on their possessions than attending the banquet. The third person who asked to be excused had just gotten married. Now, of all of the excuses that we just read, you're like, yeah, okay, that one's legit. Like, I get it. And even in the Old Testament, there were laws in the Old Testament that kind of freed people up from attending or uh, being part of certain obligations after they had gotten married. It's kind of in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, it talks about that. But even as I studied, commentators were saying, yeah, th that is true, but this still wasn't sufficient reason for keeping this particular person from coming to the party. Because after all, they initially said they were coming. They knew all about this party, when it was going to be happening. They said they would be there, and then they weren't. And so yet again, this excuse demonstrates the guest priorities. Something else was more important than attending the banquet. And while all three excuses for rejecting this final invitation were different, they all have to do with priorities, right? They all have to do with priorities. Now, as frustrating as it was for Aaron and I to have last-minute cancelizations at our wedding, right? 
It's not like we said, hey, you know what, so-and-so can't come, let's just postpone it, right? Let's just wait a month, six months. Aaron would have been thrilled, right, if I had suggested that, right? And no, 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 of, of course, you don't do that. You, you move on with the plans, like, yeah, it's a bummer, they can't make it, but the ceremony, the reception goes on as planned, right? That's just kind of what we do. And a similar decision was made by the man who was hosting this banquet in the parable. He doesn't reschedule because some of the guests aren't coming even at the last minute. He decides that the party will go on. And not only that, he says, I'm going to invite more people. And so he sends his servant out to invite those who have been excluded, who were looked down upon in that society. The crippled, the lame, the blind, the poor. People that he had just referenced back in verse 13. And so all of these people accept the invitation and they begin to fill the house. But the servant goes back to the master and says, hey, there's still more room. And he says, great, go out to the roads, right, and for the travelers as they're passing by these country roads. Invite them to come too. And they started to accept the invitation. They started to fill the house. And these people wouldn't have even known the host. They would have been strangers. They were just on their road, on the road to somewhere else. Basically... Anyone and everyone is invited to this banquet. The parable ends with a final comment from the host about those who were initially invited but refused to come at the last minute. Verse 24 says, I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Those who were initially invited and turned it down at the last minute would not be allowed to attend. Now, if you're like me, questions of like, well, well why is this parable significant? Or even uh, a question that pops into my mind maybe even, even a little bit more is, why would Jesus share this story with the Pharisees? Right? Especially at this particular time, like, like, why? Why does he share this story with them? What does this have to do with them? To answer these questions, we've got to begin by understanding some of the symbolism of this parable. Like, what is Jesus actually talking about? You see, the man who was preparing the banquet, the host, that represents God, right? And, and this, this banquet is really representative of salvation through Jesus. It's a picture of eternity in heaven. And the guests who were initially invited... Well, that represents the Israelites or the Jews. And the Pharisees certainly would have fallen into that category. And so in verses 16 and 17, we see that the Israelites, or in this particular case of the parable, the Pharisees were invited to the banquet. But if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know that not only were the Israelites or the Pharisees invited to that banquet upon Jesus' arrival on the scene, right, when he was doing his earthly ministry, but they were actually invited to this banquet way back when, early on in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7 says, and this is God speaking, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. He's talking to the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews. But throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites had this unfortunate habit, this bad habit of rejecting God. Despite all that God did for them, they turned and worshiped other gods. Despite the fact that God was in charge, he was their king. 
the Israelites looked around at other pagan nations, and they said, hey, they got a king. We want one too. Despite God embracing them as his own people, they turned their back on him. See, the Israelites were given every advantage. They were given the inside track. However, victory wasn't guaranteed, and neither was a relationship with God. All they had to do was live in obedience to God. All they had to do was submit to God, but generations failed to do so. And unfortunately, that trend continues with the Pharisees. Despite knowing the Old Testament law front and back, despite being familiar with all the 300-plus prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed to this Messiah, Jesus, the one who was to come, they knew all that stuff. They had it memorized, and yet they still didn't recognize that Jesus is the one who is coming. They didn't recognize that this is the one we've been waiting for. These are all, the, all of these prophecies, this is who it was pointing to. And they, they don't see it. They miss it. And not only that, they reject him. They opposed him. They tried to destroy him. And even at this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, Luke 14, he's been around a while. He's taught them a bunch of things. He's performed miracles. But even at this point, and they still don't get it. They assume because they're Jews, God's chosen people, that they're living in obedience to God. They assume that one day they will have a seat at the banquet. Blessed is the man who will one day eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. But sadly, they're mistaken. Right? Sadly, they're mistaken. Like the bunny from the tortoise and the hare or like the runner from Oregon. They failed to secure the victory that was right in front of them. They had it in the bag, but they were wrong. They thought they had it in the bag, but they were wrong. As Kobe talked about last weekend, the Pharisees didn't realize they were lost. They didn't realize their true spiritual condition and their need for a savior. And when their opportunity came to respond to the invitation and attend the banquet, they allowed other things to get in the way. And now, verse 24 says, not one of those men who are invited will attend, will be able to get a taste of my banquet. Despite being Jews who were in line for divine blessing, they will miss out because they failed to respond to Jesus' invitation. See, I think it's fairly easy for us to understand why this parable applies to the Pharisees. We can see, like, yeah, these guys continuously rejected Jesus. We know that this parable applies to their lives. But it's important for you and I to understand that this parable applies to us, too. It's speaking to our lives as well. See, if you'll remember, when the original guests refused to come, the banquet wasn't canceled. Rather, the host sent his servant out to get more guests to attend. He invited more people to come. And in the same way, when the Israelites, when the Pharisees declined the invitation, God made salvation 
available to everyone. And you and I represent the, are the represented by those who receive the invitation to the banquet following Israel's failure to accept Jesus as king. We are the Gentiles when Jesus said, hey, this is available for everyone now. We're the foreigners on the road who were passing by who didn't know the host. But now we've been invited in to participate in this banquet, to be a part of this meal. You see, when it, when it came to having a, re, a seat reserved at this heavenly banquet, the Pharisees assumed, they assumed they were good to go. I wonder how many people in the church today are making the same assumption. I wonder how many people in this room are assuming their salvation is secure but they've never truly responded to Jesus' invitation. You see, I think too many people in the church today, specifically the American church, because we're so comfortable. I think too many of us today are going to miss out on a seat at the banquet or the blessings that come from a life lived in service to God because other priorities get in the way. And when the invitation to accept God's free gift of salvation comes or, or an opportunity to serve presents itself, we have to ask ourselves, well, how, how are we going to respond? And I think the unfortunate reality is like the Pharisees, we're more prone to give excuses than we think we are. And I know this is certainly true of me. See, as we look back on the parable and, and examine some of their excuses, we we remember, we, we look back and see that the first excuse given had to deal with a business transaction. Work or business took priority over attending the banquet. Hey, I have to go close this deal. And for many of us, this is an excuse that we can relate to. We get this one. We're so driven and consumed by our work. So much so that everything else takes a back seat, including our relationship with God. But Exodus 20, verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me, but when we evaluate our own life, we are, hopefully, will realize, like, man, my to-do list, my job, my career, it's become an idol. So we have to ask the question, is work keeping you from being all in when it comes to your relationship with God? In the parable, we see the, the second excuse that was given by the, someone who was originally attended or invited to attend. And this second person gave the excuse that revolved around their, their wealth, their possessions. They placed more value on their things, the stuff they owned, than attending the banquet. The fact that we live in America, one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest nation in the world, means that there is potential for this excuse to become a problem for us, Right? Because everything's all about more money and stuff. However you want to say it, whatever it looks like in your own life, we get caught up in chasing after money and stuff. It's all about keeping up with the Joneses. But when we're so focused on keeping up with the Joneses, it's very difficult for us to focus or have the perspective that God wants us to have on our finances. And the Bible talks plenty about that. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man, which means all of us, because we live in America. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Is money, are your possessions keeping you from being all in when it comes to your relationship with God? Now, if you remember back to the parable when we originally talked about it, there was a point where Jesus had an opportunity to make things at the dinner a little more comfortable, right? He could have hit that release valve and said, hey, everyone, it, it's okay, it's all right, we, you know, we'll be fine. But he didn't, he didn't do that. Instead, he chose to challenge the people because comfort is the enemy of spiritual growth. And so with that in mind... Let's look at the third excuse. You see, in the parable, the third man gave the excuse that revolved around family. His wife was more important than attending the banquet, which, remember, the banquet represents salvation, eternity in heaven, walking with Jesus. And when we hear the excuse of family, my guess is that this isn't something that initially, initially resonates with all of us. Like, oh yeah, my, my family is the problem here, right? But I think we need to ask ourselves a question of, has my family become an idol? Has family become an idol? Do we elevate our commitment to family over our commitment to God? You see, of course, God wants us to have healthy marriages. He hates divorce. He calls us in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, love your wife. Wives, respect your husband. Of course, God wants healthy marriages. We need to be godly parents. We need to be involved in our kids' lives. It's one of our primary responsibilities as parents. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7 says, These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Of course, we need to work hard at pointing our kids to Jesus. However, a godly marriage and solid parenting should be a response to, a result of our commitment to God. You see, we say, it's kind of like a model for Christians, God first, family second, right? God first, family second. It's probably on a piece of art somewhere in somebody's house, right? God first, family second. And that's like the Christian motto. It's one of our slogans. But is that actually true? 
Is that actually how it plays out in your life? When you look at your finances, is God first and family second? When you look at your money, what you spend it on each and every month, is God first and family second? What about your schedule on Sunday mornings? Is God first and family second? See, we're terrible at this in America. On average, so many of us come to church about once a month. God, God first, family second, though. Like, we're all about that. I don't know if that's true all the time. Right after this parable, the very next thing Jesus says, which, of course, he's God, so he knew what he was doing, Luke 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So if Jesus is saying that, don't tell me it's not a problem in the church. And that sounds kind of crazy to us, and basically what this verse means is that our passion, our love, our devotion to Jesus should be so great that our love for our family could be considered hatred. By comparison, you better believe that I want to be the best dad and husband I can be. Of course I do. But more than that, I want to make sure that I'm first and foremost devoted to Jesus because that will ensure that I'm the husband and father God calls me to be. And I'm going to screw that up more than I care to admit. We all are. But you better believe that at least when I screw it up, I want to know that I'm striving for the right thing. Is family keeping you from being all in when it comes to your relationship with God? We've all been invited to the banquet by the grace of God. How will you respond to your invitation? My hope is that none of us will end up like the Pharisees. On the outside looking in, that we won't miss an opportunity to attend the banquet. And how do we avoid being like them? Don't assume you're standing before God. Don't miss an invitation to attend the banquet. Live your life for him. We all must respond to Jesus. We need to set aside the roadblocks and the excuses and make him the top priority. And once we do that, we'll find out how worth it it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are so grateful for your word and the challenge that it brings to us. God, I pray that we would be responsive to it, God, myself included. Forgive me, Lord, for the ways that I, I give excuses, for that my priorities are out of line and my pursuit of comfort over growth. Lord, uh, following you is not always easy, but it is always worth it. So help us to grow, Lord. I pray as we turn our attention to offering, God, an opportunity to continue to worship you because of who you are and what you've done for us. It's just a way for us to respond in faith to you. May you be glorified this morning. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.